Welcome to the International Bass Podcast brought to you by Wordbee. My name is Tanya Faulkner and this episode is a recording of a recent panel discussion about marketing localization, where experts Esther Coriel from Indeed, Romina Francescina from Hogarth, as well as Erika Hames and Bruno Herman discussed how you can find your brand voice in localization and how to keep that same voice in different languages. Without further ado, enjoy the discussion. Welcome to this experts panel by Wordbee. It will be hosted by my colleague Robert Drogi and myself, Tanya Falkner. And in this panel, we want to discuss marketing localization and how to find and keep your brand voice. Brand voice includes everything from words and language you use to the personality and image your marketing assets aim to invoke. It plays an important role in making sure your message cuts through the noise and makes a lasting impression on potential customers. At Word B, we work with big marketing agencies to help them maintain consistent brands across languages and providing a powerful and integrated end-to-end -end translation management system and CAT tool. So we're super excited to welcome the four of our guests here with us today. And we'd like to take a moment to uh, invite you to introduce yourselves. So I guess we might as well start off with Esther Curiel from Indeed. Thanks very much, Robert. Delighted to be here. Okay, so I'm, I'm Esther Curiel. I'm the Localization Operations Manager at Indeed, the world's largest job site. And uh, at the moment, I am leading the content effectiveness team, and we're basically tasked with ensuring that um, our brand, the Indeed brand, doesn't get lost in translation. So prior to Indeed, I had several roles at uh, various LSPs. I've been in the industry for 20 years now. And uh, I've been specializing in, over the last 10 years or so, I've specialized in linguistic quality management and ensuring that uh, the localized uh, materials meet the requirements, uh, you know, from a brand and marketing point of view that uh, clients would have. Cool. Thanks. So next, Romina Francescina from Hogarth. Hello, everybody. I'm Romina Francescina. I'm Global um, Head of Languages for Hogarth. And as Esther, I've been in the industry for quite a number of years. So um, before joining Hogarth, I worked in a number of LSPs. And um, I've been very lucky through my career to fulfill different roles within the industry. I, I worked as an in-house translator for a legal publisher. I taught at uni translation studies at university. And then eventually I found my way to project management. And the beauty of um, having a career like that is for me today that I understand clients and our language. So it's that transition between those two universes um, and being able to bridge, hopefully, doing it successfully, bridging the needs and the experts that can help me feel those. So um, I'm quite happy you know, to be where I am today. Awesome. Thank you. So, Bruno Erman, you can introduce yourself. Sure. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Bruno Herman. I'm currently based in uh, Brussels. I have more than 25 years of experience in global content management, including uh, globalization and localization. Actually, I started my career in the localization industry, uh, which was a long time ago, as you probably noticed. But also, I'm, after that, I moved to the client side where I was leading digital globalization programs. So most recently, I was in charge of all digital globalization efforts for Nielsen, a famous uh, market research and business intelligence company. And uh, in that company, I was leading, as I said, globalization, including localization, testing, and international marketing efforts. 
thanks. And let's move on to Erica. Hi. So I have a very odd background. I started in the music business and uh, mostly worked in music video production and moved on to, I had a very long role at Apple where I globalized marketing materials. So really content production. And I started my own company to advise companies on the globalization of their marketing. And for the last six months, I've been on site at SurveyMonkey doing some localization project management for their marketing pages. And uh, just as a quick follow-up, are there any music videos that you worked on that are like particularly cool? They'd be over 10 years old, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. But that's a super interesting background. <laughs> Well, we're honored to have all of you on to the panel today. So thank you so much for coming on. All right. So let's kick things off. I mentioned at the beginning a little bit what brand voice is, but we want to know what does the term mean to you guys? For me, brand voice is actually two things. It's brand effectiveness and it's the language of customers. So f first of all, I will start with you know brand effectiveness. Uh, Esther already mentioned the word effectiveness which is also very near and dear to my heart, because for me, effectiveness is really summarizing what uh, performance and, and what quality is in a more objective way than just, uh, is it good or bad? I would say that to elaborate on, on brand effectiveness, I would say that I usually divide brand effectiveness into three major areas, which is language effectiveness, linguistic effectiveness, cultural effectiveness, and functional effectiveness. It's probably due to the fact that my world is highly digital, but I think even in the physical world, you can find linguistic, cultural, and functional requirements that have to be met. And the second thing that I mentioned is the language of customers. And, and this is really what drives for me the right brand voice, which is actually the voice that has to meet, that has to match what customers understand and are delighted by. And that's probably the biggest challenge is actually to understand, to deliver, and, and to sustain this voice that may be changing across markets. Esther already touched on that because there are so many languages, so many different markets where people are different, people are changing. So it, it's an ongoing, it's probably a lifelong challenge for marketeers to do that well. Uh, I have a few examples. I have one that I would like to raise today, which is quite recent in Europe or between Europe and China. But I guess I will, I will just take that example uh, a bit later on in, in the discussion. So that's, in summary, what my perspective is on, on brand voice. The, the one thing I would add on to that is that, particularly because Bruno mentions the digital world, when it comes to brand voice, we need to be considering not only the voice that customers will recognize, but also how customers make changes to the voice that maybe the brand wants to portray. Nowadays, with so much content being put out there about brands by the customers, be it happy customers or unhappy customers, one of the things that is changing is brands are not the only authority on brand voice. So nowadays, at least uh, within Hogas, we do pay a lot of attention to the customer-generated content and the language in that to communicate back to the brand as well. And in some cases, brands want to adjust how they communicate with customers and with the world and how they talk about themselves as well. So this is a relatively new entrant in, in this kind of complex mix of um, authorities about a brand. Oh, that's interesting. That's like ninja brand localization. <laughs> <Completely>. <laughs> I think that's amazing because you don't really, you don't have that 
you have even less control. Yeah. But for me, the brand voice is the customer's relationship with that brand. I always think of Starbucks as an example. You know, I can be traveling the world or be at a truck stop. It doesn't matter when I see the brand, I have that instant relationship with the brand, whether it's the color or you know, the, the font or I know, like I have this feeling of, I have a relationship, you know, and no matter where I am, I'm sort of at home with that brand. So that's really what, what I think of. I think it's important as well, like one of the things that uh, I think fades very often is that uh, you might have a very well-defined brand in your domestic market and you're kind of expecting that you can just transpose that with minor changes to the regional markets. But the conditions in, in those markets might be so different and the, the tolerance for, I don't know, like uh, the level of detail they might require or the tolerance for friendliness and chit-chat versus let's go straight to the point and so on can be very different. The market positioning can be very different as well and the, the maturity of the market that you're approaching and your clients. And I think uh, there tends to be a lot of effort put into creating customer personas and so on in the home market and not, you know, not at the end of that level of care might be put in the regional markets where you might need to recreate those personas again. So I think things fail very often in there, but there's a few brands like Starbucks, you're right, Erica, like they really, they've done an amazing job at really customizing just enough mm-hmm. to really reach the hearts of the people in the different countries while still retaining the, the overall brand that is recognizable anywhere in the world. So that's a, that's a real challenge and yeah, the companies get it right. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And I mean, you all basically, you know, you all have a different perspective of what it is, but I guess in the end it all fits in together. So how do you think, or how do you find the brand voice then not only for your own company, but also I guess for agencies and for consultants, how do you find that for your clients? Well, I can just, just to go back to my previous point about brand effectiveness and linguistic, cultural, and functional, I can use that example I have in mind uh, right now, which is not digital, surprisingly enough, for me, uh, which is very physical. It's wine. Recently, I found a very interesting discussion in, in France, which might also impact other countries like Italy and Spain in the future. And this discussion was around how brand, how wine should be branded in China. And a number of wine producers in France discovered that their prestigious brand names was actually completely recreated in China to be closest, to be closer to the context of China, to be closer to the practices and the, the habits of Chinese customers. I have an example here, which I personally really like, which is that, for instance, you have a brand uh, of French wine, which is called Chateau L'Artreau. And it was actually rebranded in China as Imperial Rabbit. So you might say, what is the connection between Chateau and a rabbit? Well, you should have two bottles, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You're a great marketer. I knew about that. So, um, no, the, the point here is that in France, many people were shocked by this for two reasons. First of all, because it was it was felt like an offense or a loss of wine brands, famous wine brands, and also because those people could not understand that it was more than just translation that was needed. So they didn't translate Chateau L'Artreau into Chinese because that was not enough. 
that would have been maybe linguistic effectiveness, but not cultural and functional effectiveness. So they, they decided to hyper-localize this wine brand and to rebrand it as Imperial Rabbit to actually, because Imperial Rabbit is a sign of luxury. It's a sign of prestige in China. And wine is synonym of prestige in China. So they adapted the brand linguistically, culturally, because that's about the Chinese customers and not the French customers, and also functionally, because they packaged, they even created small bottles of this wine, which is usually not to be found in small bottles. It's usually the normal size of bottles, but they resized the packaging to be more functional to Chinese customers. And this is for me a great example of brand recreation, transcreation. I personally like the word hyperlocalization that goes straight to linguistic, cultural, and functional effectiveness, more than just translating you know, something in Italian, Spanish, or French into simplified Chinese, hoping that Chinese customers will, will find it great. No, they will probably find it a bit strange just to translate Chateau L'Artreau in simplified Chinese, because in, Chi in simplified Chinese, it doesn't mean a lot. It goes basically to the heart of what the brand was trying to convey in the French market. Like it has, it has a connotation of luxury or, you know, and it's, uh, it's that ultimate connotation that you want to recreate in Chinese. So that's what we sometimes are missing, I think. You know, we have our style guides and our tone of voice documents and so on, but we might sometimes be a little bit skin deep, you know, we, we don't go into the heart of, uh, okay, why are we saying we are approachable or, or you know, uh, our tone of voice is friendly or whatever. What, what's the ultimate purpose? What do we want to elicit? That's exactly what these guys have done. So that's a lot to learn from that, I suppose. The one thing I would add to that is, particularly, you know, brand owners will know exactly what audience they're communicating with and what that audience would appreciate. So in some cases, you will have audiences that want you to bring the brand to them. And in some cases, audiences will want to be brought over to somebody else's culture as part of the experience of mm -hmm. the brand. So in some cases, the ultra localization or, or whatever term Bruno used may not necessarily be the strategy the brand would want. In some cases, particularly for uh, luxury items, what we find is brands have their own really unique space and they usually walk that fine line between saying to customers, we understand your culture, but also come and join ours because you're part of a selected group. What, what I think about are, you know, also what are the boundaries? What boundary are you going to put upon how far you're going to stretch the brand? Mm. So, you know, you have a creative brief, let's say with marketing, and you get this general, I guess, decree. I don't know. This is, <laughs> these are your guidelines. This is what you're what you're going to follow, and you have to stay within this box. And did you stay within that box? Did you really alter from that? Mm. So, I think with the wine, it's a really great example because. They really wanted to get into the China marketplace, which is probably one of the most difficult markets to get into. You either sell your business to China or you distribute in China or you partner with China. It's just it's very, very difficult to navigate. So this French wine company really did bend over backwards to really fit themselves into the marketplace. And, you know, but one of the examples I really like are, which is totally different, are the Harry Potter novels, because they even took the words like 
the the different schools and the and the references to snakes and then in French they came up with their own interpretation so they could get the same feeling but that was the boundary the boundary was we want you to have a certain feeling or you know but it wasn't Harry Potter wasn't really translated that literally when they came to those names that they made up like for the school Slytherin to be like a snake or you know but so I think it really depends on what what boundaries are you going to put around your brand to say okay that's too much that now we've mm -hmm. completely diluted the, the brand to you know all right well we're going to bend over backwards to get into this marketplace which for China I would do that. Right. So what would be the process um, for making these decisions, like uh, in terms of uh, market research or any other types of processes that you would use to decide, you know, how far you're going to go with the brand, if you're going to meet them or if they're going to meet you? Like, how, how do you decide that? My top tip would be always, always, always involve your customer. Do not make that decision for them. Creative agencies will have an input on how they're helping them, you know, develop their voice and brands. So these shouldn't be decisions that linguists or, or LSPs should make on their own. The brand belongs to somebody and that person should most definitely be part of that decision making. Right, right. So I guess an LSP should then be like if they are tasked with helping out with this, they should provide all the information and transparency to help the client decide. <laughs> making decisions. Well, um, they, but they really help. I mean, you've got your LSPs and even your translators or your linguistic managers, quality assurance managers, they can speak to the culture. They can speak to what will not work, what will completely offend. But Romina is totally right. It's the customer that really drives the brand to say, oh, should we put resources there? It's, am I gonna sell stuff there? Or if I'm already starting to sell my product there, then I decide to put more resources into the area. So the customer definitely dictates that, but I think the earlier you work with your cultural ambassadors, you know, the better, because you can find out where you can mess up along the way, where you can offend with a color and you can offend with the imagery. And so I would want to use those people as much as possible. But I think client side, it's definitely driven by the customer and how well that product might even already be doing in that market. Mm -hmm. Are there any specific types of contents or communications that are most challenging to localize or transcreate? For me, I mean, anything that really tries to elicit a response in a very condensed manner, so email marketing, blogs as well. Blogs can be very, very US-centric sometimes. I'm saying US-centric, whichever the language of the home market was. They can be very difficult to adapt. They can, they can really, it's very easy for them to be totally irrelevant for different markets, even when it might not seem so at first sight. So that type of material for me would be difficult. Uh, it, it shouldn't be just translated mm -hmm. uh, in, in any case. I should add here, of course, content related to like content that you see part of, you know, the brand voice. And I'm assuming email marketing and blogs and all that stuff belongs to that as well, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for things like, say, webinar decks, ebooks, stuff like that, uh, there is a quite a big need for adaptation sometimes and so on. But yeah, the shorter the content, the more difficult it is 
condense the message in a manner that is really going to resonate. We also find that humor, whenever brands want to use humor, that becomes tricky to transfer from one culture to another, either because people will find different things funny or because some of the cultural references in the humor may just make no sense whatsoever. So as Esther's saying, in, in those cases, the adaptation is absolutely fundamental. And that's where, as Erica mentioned, you need to know how far you can take it. Do you come up with something completely different? Do you go back to a brand owner and say, what do we do about this? Do you create content that is for a specific market? And there isn't a, I, I wouldn't believe if anybody said, oh, there is a single answer for all of those. Right. There never is, especially with marketing. You have your headline copy, let's say, where you say it's the best, it's the funnest, or you make up a word. Years ago, Apple had a campaign around their nano called it nanochromatic. Yeah. And to talk about the many colors of a nano. And, you know, I know when the translators started working on that, they were like, <laughs> they had no idea what to do with it at first so a lot of discussions had to be had as to how can we fit this in no one's going to get this mm -hmm. so you know so i think there a lot of discussions need to be had but for me the more time you give your partners and the earlier you bring them in let's mm -hmm. say it's your lsp or you have in-house it the talent, whatever, you know, know to bring them in as early as possible. And for me, even if they're just what we call in America, a fly on the wall, and they don't say anything, you need someone who knows the whole cycle of the marketing process or the product kickoff process. Someone who could really speak to the different, either it's an agency or a local office, and really be able to speak to where they started, what's supposed to stay, what can't go. and But the earlier you bring those people in, I think the better for your budget at the end of the day, because then there'll be less surprises. There's always going to be a surprise where you're always going to say, oh, I had no idea that would offend people in Australia. It just it would be <laughs> these things that you're just always learning. Once you learn it, remember it and share it with everyone. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it again. But I think that's very important. That's why I'm always stressing, bring people in, bring your stakeholders in as soon as possible, even if you don't think they're going to start working on the project for maybe months down the road or have someone, your, a project manager, some sort of liaison that can really speak to where you started mm -hmm. and all the different iterations and what may have been rejected or where you want to stay away from, especially when it's marketing. It's very delicate and there's just so many moving pieces. You know, we, we call it the game of telephone where you'd say one thing to someone and the message would just get diluted. So I would find that sometimes when I worked on projects and someone in, let's say, Korea was picking up a project eight months later, I would there was a lot of history I needed to fill in. And also when the um, asset, well, we were talking about assets earlier before the call, but when the actual <laughs> physical thing, whether it's going to be on the web or in print, that actual digital asset or whatever, it, you, you have to understand that whatever you're creating for the U.S. or your source country is going to be used elsewhere down the line. 
So it's never going to be, I made this one image, this one email, this one poster for all countries. That's just going to mm -hmm. live forever. Nothing should ever be static. And, and there's a history and lots of metadata that goes with it. Yeah. And that awareness is not always there. It's very obvious to us. I think we're preaching to the converted probably. Exactly. <laughs> it's amazing how little awareness there can be in organizations and content creators and so on. Yeah, it was, it's, it's an education process. Yeah, yeah. Erica, you, you've written about that, I think, about silos as well and, uh, and so on. So it's, it's very topical, <laughs> I think. Before we get into like nuts and bolts stuff, we've scoured uh, the internet for some interesting quotes. And we found one from the Harvard Business Review. And uh, it would be interesting to get your, your thoughts on this. I think it's going to be kind of like boohoo. So just to, to <laughs> you made um, us cry during the webinar. <laughs> no, not that. So they write whether to standardize or localize marketing programs remains one of the most enduring debates in global firms. Multinationals thrive on scale, and scale favors standardization across markets. So they were they wrote an article that was sort of saying it's not worth the trouble. I think to localize or over localize or or hyper localize. Does anyone have anything like what if you were talking to Harvard Business Review, the guy who wrote it, what or Lee, uh, what would you say? Well, uh, to a point, Robert. I think this this debate around standardization, localization, hyper localization has been around at least in my experience for a long, long time, at least two decades when it was uh, related to should it be more centralized, should it be more delocalized or, you know, decentralized, to use the right word. And I think that in my experience, in working with multinational organizations spread all around the world, the one thing that I found nice to have to, not to kill this debate, but certainly to mitigate risks and, um, you know, uh, never-ending discussions was to kind of insist or focus on uh, the need for a framework, the need for the framework where countries, local stakeholders should work in. Because otherwise, okay, if you centralize everything, people locally, they, they find themselves a little bit voiceless, they find themselves not useful. And if you empower, if you enable them to execute some local marketing campaigns, not by allowing them to do whatever they want, not standardizing everything that they will do, but actually just setting the stage, creating the framework where they can work with it without any risk of deviating from the global brand or any risk of spending time and money on things that they couldn't do themselves anyway. I think that's really the, the, the kind of, it's not really a silver bullet that I found, but certainly this is the angle I addressed to solve this discussion between standardization or decentralization, because I think the truth is in the middle. And for me, the middle is this framework that in multinational organizations help people from corporate organizations and local organizations work together, collaborate to what Erica said before, cooperate and also co-create content. So I think mm -hmm. that's how, that would be my reply to Harvard in that case. It's not binary, it's not black and white. But I think the framework that you can put in place, or that you should put in place, is going to drive much of your success working and delivering locally. It's really going to be 
you know, I mean, you're totally right. And from a client perspective, Harvard Business Review is right. And that's where we all come in. And that's where we all promote localization and the importance. And we educate our teams, but we prove with metrics. Like Bruno was saying about the risk, I just went to a networking event at PayPal like a week ago, and that's exactly what they talked about. They talked about justifying your risks to your C-suites and with and give them hard facts and numbers. So a company doesn't really globalize, I think, out of the goodness of their heart. They're not like, oh, I know they'd really, my customer would really appreciate this. But the customers are driving it. We have, I saw some study that said, you know, people prefer to be spoken to in their own language. So if you're fighting for that customer, for the Japanese customer, you're going to localize into Japanese. You're not just going to say, well, I'm the only game in town. And, and if you were, that's exactly what you would do. You would have one version. That's the best thing you can do for your budget. So the detail in which you're going to localize has to be decisions that move the needle is what we call it, you know, or, or what I have often heard it called. It, there's got to be a dollar sign attached to that. And it's our responsibility, I think, as an industry to use social media is what I try to do through women in localization in just promoting our business. What is it? So the C-level executives just hear it. What the hell is that? (laughs) And and within the client side, I have also seen that companies, I'm sure Esther, you know, may have more experience with this where you're trying to get the budgets and the and the resources spent. So you're in that fight. And then for the vendor side, I think they can help with also, you know, promoting the industry itself and how important it is and how impactful these decisions are. But you know, no company could afford, not even an Apple or an Amazon, to localize every little detail. You see, they make very strategic decisions as to if they're going to translate their website, if they're going to translate into Latin American Spanish versus Spanish Spanish. <laughs> so if you're going to target a particular country and then you're sub- subject to a lot of their cultural restrictions and laws versus if you're just going to take your site and just translated. So there's uh, there's so much intricacies and depths into what you do and localize that, you know, I would say Harvard Business Review, you're totally right, but the market will dictate and that's what's going to prove you wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in this age of, uh, I mean, this trend is happening everywhere across every industry, every, every interaction we have. It's a trend towards personalization content has changed dramatically over the last few years. It's, it's, I think it was yourself, Ramina, where you were talking about user-generated content. The conversation is now two-way. It's, it's not yeah. brands pushing out their messaging and you know, to a public that has no choices. It's totally changed. You have local competitors as well that are creating the, the, the content in the local language. So the, the field has changed enormously over the last few years. And um, Erika made a very good point. You can now actually measure this stuff. You, you have analytics. You have the ability to prove to the C-suite that whether, you know, localizing, transcreating, whatever it is, the, the process you want to follow for a particular content type, does it work or not? In very black and white terms, here's the numbers. So 
yeah, um, I, I agree with Bruno. You know, you need to have a framework. You can't. You're never going to have the budget uh, to uh, hyperlocalize or, or localize everything properly. But you have numbers now to start making decisions. And, and uh, yeah, it's. I, I think it's a. <laughs> It's a trend that we can't stop at this point. I was going to say, uh, um, linguistic partners, a part of our role is also help our clients identify the high value content that they should treat in a very specific way and maybe use a slightly different strategy for the rest of the copy. So, you know, if you're talking about a TV campaign as opposed to how you communicate with customers in terms of your terms and conditions of returns of products or whatever. You may take slightly different ways of going about that copy just so you can allow customers to translate or localize the best parts of their copy and treat in a maybe simpler, I don't think that that's a fair word for this, but in a more straightforward way. So again, as partners to brand owners, I think all of us are always keen to help them work on the key copy and throw all of the resources onto that because also that filters down into the rest of the material that we may be helping clients with. One thing I could add because uh, Esther and Erica, you mentioned dollars and I fully agree with you. In my experience, there is another type of argument that comes up quite regularly between standardization or non-standardization. For me, there are really two types of costs. There is a cost of doing everything, which is just not possible because, as you said, we cannot localize or any company cannot localize everything anywhere for everybody. And there is the cost of doing nothing because the cost of doing nothing is, for me, as harmful as the cost of doing everything. Because maybe you will not spend any dollar, but you will you will not get anything from the brand anyway. So I think that helps also frame or put in place this framework that I was referring to before, because in my experience, I've seen some organizations kind of pushing from the top to the bottom, everything as if it was set in stone and without any engagement locally, without any cooperation locally. And as a result of that, okay, locally, nothing happened. So there was no cost locally, but the result was none either. So, it, you know, dollars can be mixed with this organizational aspect, which is so important to engage, collaborate, and deliver. Mm -hmm. Just a comment on cost. Yeah, that's really important. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBe Translator. WordBe Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBe over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics, and it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordbee Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast.
So when we bring this back a little bit again to localizing brand voice, you know, how does the process look like? How do you make sure that you actually keep your brand voice when localizing? I mean, of course, there's adaptation. It's not always exactly the same. But what process do you put in place and how do you maintain that? I'm thinking towards like style guides, like how do you handle that? Definitely style guides, glossaries, and that's how you communicate with your localization service provider. But I think it really, the more information that you can share and also the longer the relationship you have. I've seen definitely with LSPs and clients, you have this really long relationship and they've seen you grow and they really know your product. And the more that, I heard someone recently say this on a podcast that she expects her LSPs to know the product and speak up when something's wrong. And so I think it, it really is going to depend on that, also that relationship that you have and the ownership that you have. But the more you communicate, the better. And on the client side, for me, the more you prepare, knowing you know what, you know, you know how to scope and plan for this vendor who's going to pick it up. And the more cold you let them pick up, you know, the, the less information you give them, the harder you're going to make it for them and communication is going to fall through the cracks. And when communication falls through the cracks, then that's where you get diluted brand messaging. Romina, I'd be interested to know how you handle that for your clients. But in the meantime, I'm just going to pull up a quick poll for our attendees, which is asking what their primary method is to maintain consistency in their brand voice. And it should be up now. But yeah, in the meantime, Romina, could you share with us how you handle that for your clients? I think Erica covered <laughs> the main areas, which are um, style guides, translation memories, any type of reference material, previous documents that you or, or, or material that you won't refer to, but also that communication. Uh, as brands evolve as well, some of the material from the past may no longer be relevant. So focusing on the linguistic aspects that can be documented, as well as the informed decisions you can discuss with clients, I think it's the combination of those two are absolutely key. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the answers from our attendees, we have, well, actually most of them say they're using all of the above, which was style guides. <laughs> Erica did a wonderful job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also um, tools and terminology databases, as well as working with the same vendors. So that's great. I also see that a majority or like 23% chose tools and terminology database. Are there any, like what kind of tools would you recommend? And yeah, how does your toolbox look like for this workflow? What do you mean exactly? I guess, are there any specific tools that are helping you in the process of keeping your brand voice consistent? Or is it, you know, more or less the the overall tools you're using for translation, localization, like translation management systems and cat tools. Um, Robert, you are muted. <laughs> Oops, my bad. For like style guides, like tools that you're using with your style guides, like the, the whole sort of uh, ecosystem there. 
Well, style guides aren't always updated <laughs> to the desire of the, <laughs> of the <Sorry>. vendor <laughs> to make Romina laugh. Um, <laughs> so, unfortunately, I think it does take that there's still that relationship. You know, I think we really need to really hope that our clients understand how, just how important the style guide is and really think about what's going into it. What sort of consistency would you like to see that you're not seeing? Is that in the style guide? You know, so there'd be things that maybe, you know, I remember, you know, that I would ask to be in the style guide. <laughs> Because you know, I said, I keep seeing this mistake happen, so why don't we just give them that information? So it's hard. I mean, we're sort of, we use our, what's great is that we now have cat tools and that it is having our translation memory and giving us great ideas of how much, what our spend is going to be and and keeps the consistency of that voice, you know, our but I think it's very important for the vendor to understand the language of the client and understand their lingo, what they call certain things, what they call parts of the web page, or just really understand the language of the client and really hope that that style guide is robust because I think the more information as a client that you give your vendor, the better you set them up for success. So, um, but unfortunately, I think it's tough for them to say, okay, you know, when was the last time I updated this, this document? Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's uh, an interesting development, I suppose, in the area of style guides that we're looking at ourselves as well. And it's kind of creating user experience guides for the markets that contain a lot, uh, you know, style guides sometimes can be very mechanical in a way, dealing too much with, you know, punctuation and uh, form of address, formal or informal. And, stuff like that, and they, they don't necessarily address the cultural differences that might not just, like we, we often take it for granted that the LSP, they're the language experts, they're going to know the cultural differences. Yes, at a generic level, but per, perhaps not for the specific industry or for the specific market that the client is working in. So that information needs to be coming from the clients. You need to tease it out first from your local regions and then uh, feed that into these uh, style guides, user experience guides, whatever you may want to call them. So do you uh, partner with your vendors on the style guides? For things yeah, like absolutely, yeah, because you're, you're trying to, I suppose, break the silo, I guess, uh, between the, you know, the in-country marketing <laughs> teams, you know, that have the knowledge, but perhaps don't know how to verbalize it for a team of translators. You know, they're speaking different languages. So sometimes mm -hmm. they don't necessarily know how to pass on that information, but you do involve the vendor to try and tease it out. And, you know, you, you get down and dirty yourself as well asking questions that perhaps <laughs> the vendor doesn't know to ask. Mm -hmm. Just a quick word about, uh, just, just circle back on what Esther said, but from a more operational standpoint, what I've noticed all these years of practice and fights as well, was that it was really essential to position and to incorporate the uh, CAD tools and, you know, databases and, you know, analytics and all these assets that, that we just mentioned in the business processes, because that's a good way to break silos between, for instance, you know, developers, designers, product managers, marketing managers, both locally and globally. And I think that if you include all these 
assets, all these tools in the business processes and in a broader content management solution or management solutions, then you can also help people embrace governance that you push forward with those assets about, you know, and, and including vendors, by the way, to your point, Erica, because vendors can be included in this in this value chain, as I would call it. But make sure that you don't use your cat tools as standalone uh, tools out of any context, out of any governance. Try to embed that in the business processes so that everybody can see them, use them and leverage them. So uh, I guess my question was for Romina was, uh, how does that look from the Hogarth side? We deploy a number of um, mechanisms. I mean, we use this, of course, the standard, you know, translation memory style guides. And we do use a lot of the QA functionality within Word B as part of our, in a way, uh, risk management of terminology that should be used or should not be used, etc. But also, we kind of create a mix of research that we regularly do through our talent in terms of the specific markets. We share that with clients outside maybe of cycles of translation. So we don't just translate or we don't just look at the brand when there's a translation exercise. We kind of do it on a regular basis. And as you build logs of things that you may find or solutions that you may need to you know come up with during projects those logs kind of complement your style guides your translation memories and any type of quality control that you can do and of course something that we really do believe in is the having several pairs of eyes look at a piece for consistency for brand guardianship for control because you know especially when we translate or, or when we manage big amounts of words you kind of you may get the key concepts right but you need to make sure that the quality of the material is the same across the board so deploying everything and anything and not necessarily always waiting just for that live project are kind of those invisible tools that we apply uh, just to help our clients keep that voice yeah i mean i want my cat tool you know just to get on the tool side of it to be able to allow the translator to have as much context as possible. Mm. Really be able to see the image, the end result. And sometimes I think from what I hear in talking to some people, they do, we call it throw the copy over the fence. And, uh, you know, and I really want my translators to have more ownership and understand what the end result is gonna be. So, for example, if there's going to be a photo with it or it's talking about this particular product, it's not just an isolated string. So I think it's really great when your tool can really help you access the images, the documentation, as if that, you know, I want that process to be really smooth and encourage the translator to look at the image, not that they've got to go hunting for the web page or the poster or the whatever, or the video. You know, I want those things to be really accessible so they get the whole thing, you know, and it's not a string. But I mean, I know within the way we think about the way we translate things, and especially when we're trying to spend less money, we're like, all right, we're just changing one line. But that one line, that one string could change the whole meaning of, you know, uh, what I call the deliverable, you know, the end result. 
And the other thing the tool can do is allow, particularly the linguist working on copy, allow them to see the journey of the translation itself. So see versions, particularly when you involve several linguists for different parts of, you know, because they, they will bring different skills. You really want them to think about the changes that they are all making on copy, because sometimes that conversation alone kind of informs the decisions that you'll make. So I agree with Erica that what the tool allows the stakeholders in that process to see really does enable better quality work. Besides the tools, do you see any difficulties working with external versus internal translators or vendors in general when it comes to consistency with your brand? Esther, I'd actually be curious, are you working at Indeed with internal or external translators? both uh, some internal resources and uh, mostly external partners. I think uh, not just from Indeed, but kind of across uh, <laughs> my career, I suppose. I think one of the biggest challenges is that uh, there isn't enough transparency when it comes to the supply chain, mm-hmm. of who is working on your translators. And I think this is, a, I've heard this from many, many client side people all throughout the years. You know, they, they have a big issue with not knowing who is working on their translations. Mm-hmm leading some people even to decide to work with freelancers, even though that's a, an enormous overhead for them, just so that they'll have the consistency in, you know, and the learning curve that's, I mean, you, you, you need to invest in your translation vendor. And there's a learning curve in there that you're, you're investing in. You don't want to be wasting that and having to start from scratch at any point without even knowing that you're doing it. So that, that lack of transparency to me is the biggest hurdle, you know, and and a cause of a lot of dissatisfaction and frustration for client-side organizations. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Cool. So just to like follow on, like um, when you're working with translators and you're trying to maintain your your brand voice, like do you try to work um, consistently with the with the same translators in the same sort of area of a product that you're that you're working on or or on a series of marketing campaigns like do you try to work always with the same linguists in the same areas or is that not really something that you do dedicating linguists to specific types of copy brands or general materials absolutely key for consistency absolutely Mm -hmm. i actually wanted to jump on something that you mentioned earlier which is customer generated content I mean, of course, with with style guides and all the processes you have in place, you can manage how you handle internal content in terms of, you know, localizing brand voice. But how do you even begin to do that with customer generated content? Thank the law technology exists uh, <laughs> because without, without it, it would be impossible. There are tools out there that allow us to do a lot of uh, digital listening on copy. And what we do is we follow brands in specific markets or across markets. And the key thing is to share that intelligent information with clients so they can make informed decisions. We would not necessarily communicate with users or customers, of course, but sometimes, particularly if a conversation is taking on a specific route, if something funny happens in a market or if there is something dangerous or an accident or you know things like unhappy events in other markets, we help clients kind of build that tone of voice into the communication they will have through the brand. And it may be just for an event. It may be, you know, something we were talking about politics earlier on in some 
specific markets, you may want to tone down some of the messaging that you have for a specific period where other things are happening. So this is what I mean by us working with clients, not just during the life of a project, but a, a little bit around the need to have to use language. Because when you monitor what's happening, then you can be as accurate as possible when you're actually translating material for them. Well, there's that reactionary thing, though, right, Romina? So if something happens in a region and that affects what's already in play, what's yeah. being produced, I think it's really helpful that whoever that person is, whether they're in-house or not, you know, flags those issues and says, yeah. uh, hey, do you realize there was just a hurricane and yeah. three people died and that's a big yeah. deal, you know? Yeah. And sometimes influencers change the conversation. If somebody in a specific market makes a joke, uses a specific word or creates some sort of reaction, what you start to notice really quickly is that the language being used in a specific market will be very, very local because it will be in response to that specific event. So you do want to build that in. And then at that stage, you need to start to make decisions on whether that should influence the copy and the tone of voice long term or is just for the duration of that event and again the, i don't think there is a or we we haven't seen a single answer for these things we've worked with clients in different ways so as i say in some cases we've changed we help them slightly change you know what how they're communicating to respect a specific event or to respond to a specific event and then we go back to business as usual yeah Okay, well, I think we're running out of time here a little bit, but I see there's a question from Emily. She's asking, does anyone have recommendations on how to share, internally share, localization best practices and or things to avoid? I like having, you know, brown bag presentations. You know, you just put together a simple PowerPoint and talk about, I think people love those stories of what went wrong. So you can find, you know, some campaigns, hopefully not your own, and um, that are somebody else's, and where they went wrong with a campaign, you know, and maybe, you know, they spent $5 million and then printed this thing and then nobody used it. So, you know, once, once you see those things, I think it's really helpful to educate the other teams. So it's always good when you have those, they call them like brown bag presentations, just introduce yourself to the rest of your corporation and let them know what you do with a friendly presentation and snacks. So <laughs> snacks are important. <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, you know, and then they'll find what's interesting, but then in the back of their mind, they'll also start to think about, oh, wow, I'm going to have an impact on my friend, Robert, you know, I'm going to make his life really difficult. So I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I think and you educate them how much work is involved, but you do it in a positive way. So I found the most success with those kind of things, even when I'm seeing it from another team. I had no idea how much work was involved in building the screen that you did. You know, So now I know it takes 12 people and it does this and it, it, you need this much time. And But without lecturing it to people, I would do it very lighthearted, positive and snacks. So... <laughs> gonna say <laughs> and I think we need to market ourselves better like we might not be building how this is relevant to them you know we might be going to 
too quickly, too soon into the the mechanics of it and what we need to make it uh, work right, but not why and what are they going to get out of this and how this is going to help them, mm-hmm. which is what will get them listening, basically. Yeah, so, I think so. Just a better job of marketing our, our role, I suppose. In, and, and, and to your point, Esther, we should also use the right language, not, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. avoiding jargon like localization, internationalization. I changed a number of my presentations with usual words for marketeers and other, other functions. For instance, just a, a trivial example, instead of talking about localization, I was talking about local adaptation. That's something that everybody can understand. So it's kind of breaking some myth about, oh, localization, what it is. Is it some sort of religion? Is it some sort of you know, <laughs> best practice or whatever? So sometimes, sometimes it's good to get back to some grassroots uh, practices. And, and I think that you know, just using the words that marketeers, product managers, or branding leaders understand helps a lot. Just using, changing the words, but just to mean the same thing, but using a different language, so to speak, to talk to these people and, and make sure that they get the message that you're going to get across. So That's brilliant. I love that. I can give you an example, Erica, if you're interested. I'm, I'm very interested. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll give you an example. <laughs> and there's a conference about uh, branding and localization and, and globalization coming up in Barcelona, right? That is correct. On the 18th of March, we'll have a, a Brand to Global roundtable in Barcelona. Esther and Erica will be there already. So uh, it's going to be a great event, one-day event, very informal format, roundtable, uh, sharing practices, experiences. So go to the Brand to Global website for more information or just email me for more information or details about how to register, etc. But uh, the date is the 18th of March, and the place is the vibrant city of Barcelona. Great. Well, that was a really interesting panel. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We don't want to keep you here any longer. I know it's late for some of you. So thank you Uh, all so much, Robert. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And am I muted? No. Oh, I was I was just gonna say that if you have any extra passes for the for the round table in Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we take that offline, Robert. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. It was great having you. Thank you for thank having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank thank you. you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the International Bus Podcast. If you'd like to attend live next time, you can register for upcoming panel discussions on our website, wordbee.com.